Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I love that part. Okay, anyway, welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mary Roach, journalist and author, and your moderator for the program. Uh, this program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. I'm now pleased to introduce today's speakers, Dr. Judy Melanick and T.J. Mitchell, authors of the new novel, First Cut. Spouses Judy Melanick and T.J. Mitchell write about death, but they lead a most interesting life. They are New York Times bestselling co-authors of the memoir Working Stiff, Two Years, 262 Bodies, and The Making of a Medical Examiner, as well as the new novel First Cut. Dr. Melanick studied at Harvard and UCLA Medical School, was a medical examiner in San Francisco for nine years, and today works as a forensics forensics forensic pathologist in Oakland, as well as CEO of Pathology Expert, Inc. T.J. Mitchell is a writer with an English degree from Harvard and has worked in the film industry. First Cut is the debut novel in their Jesse Tesca detective series, centering on San Francisco's newest medical examiner who uncovers a constellation of deaths that point to an elaborate plot involving nefarious opioid traffickers, flashy tech titans who got rich off Bitcoin, Autopsy means see for yourself. And in Melanick and Mitchell's novel, Jesse Tesco won't stop until she's seen it all. Even if it means the next corpse on the table could be her own. <laughs> I'm very pleased to talk with this unique writing team who are partners in life and work. Please welcome Dr. Judy Melanick and T.J. Mitchell. Thank you, Mary. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, so um, I wanted to uh, say a little word, uh, and we know what their relationship is now, but Judy and I actually have uh, known each other for uh, quite a few years. We are united in stiffs in that um, I wrote a book called Stiff. Her book is Working Stiff. Yeah. Different material, different topics, but uh, we were invited to, to do a joint radio interview uh, which we did, I believe, at the medical examiner's office we down did. when it used to be under the freeway in Oakland. Uh, and we hit it off really well. And now we have a standing lunch date on, on Fridays uh, if there's a body to be examined. <laughs> uh, and I always look forward to that, which is kind of strange for me because it's kind of like, oh, I hope I get to see Judy, which is kind of like, well, I hope somebody's been murdered this week. <laughs> Bad news for someone, good yeah, news exactly. for you. Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, anyway, it's a, it's a pleasure to uh, be here with Judy and, and TJ tonight. Um, so uh, Jesse Tesca, uh, uh, the, the character, the main character, the detective, um, curses in Polish, drinks horrible morgue coffee, lives in a, a, a old uh, cable car out in the avenues, has a beagle that she never bothered to name, so she calls it B, which is short for beagle. Uh, <laughs> she's a totally lovable uh, um, character, and uh, I, I wanted just to know, TJ, um, is she based on anybody that we might know? Anybody, 
like who might be sitting in this room. <laughs> yeah, you, you'd think so, but not really. Je- yeah. Jesse Tesca is like our troublesome child. There, <laughs> there are things about her that are taken from Judy for sure. Yep. And there are things about her that are taken from me. And there are things about her that, that while we were writing the book, she just opened up to us that we were not expecting at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, she's, uh, I, I love, I mean, I love Judy, but I also love Jesse Tesca. There's this one moment, um, just to give you an idea of this, this woman, she, um, uh, this acquaintance, she doesn't really know that well, is coming back from a run, and uh, she looks up and sees him coming up the stairs in a faded Stanford athletics shirt and black spandex bicycle shorts, which considerably, <laughs> immediately brighten my outlook on the day. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, she's, uh, she's a wonderful character and I'm hoping that we, and and we'll be seeing more and more because this is sort of a, I was going to say Miss Maples, but that's not, it's not Marla Maples. Who's the Miss Maples? Miss Marple. Marple. Thank you. Yeah. Different famous character. The Marla Maples mysteries. The Marla, (laughs) yes. The Marla Maples mystery series. Um, um, before we go any further, uh, I want to clear up some confusion. It is confusion that, I've had, and I think a lot of people have, about um, medical examiner, coroner, and pathologist. Sure. What do those all mean? What do you do? Yeah. So a forensic pathologist is a doctor whose uh, specialty is performing autopsies, which are surgical procedures to figure out why people die, and specifically in the context of deaths that are sudden, unexpected, or violent. And a forensic pathologist, in order to become that level of training, has to go first through medical school, after, after college, medical school. After medical school, you have to do at a minimum three years of pathology residency, which has to do with hospital-based training in making diagnoses of tissues and organs and also doing autopsies, and then another year of fellowship training in forensics. And that's what Working Stiff is about. Working Stiff is about my year of training at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. Now, a forensic pathologist, after finishing all that training, Mm -hmm. can choose to work either in the setting of a medical examiner's office or a coroner's office. Those offices do the same things, but the terms are not interchangeable. Generally, a medical examiner, the office is run by physicians. So all the investigation, all the um, autopsy work, all the laboratories, they're run by doctors. Versus in a coroner system, the overarching entity is either an administrator mm-hmm. or a law enforcement officer like a sheriff. They may have no training at all in death investigation. And the coroner as well may doesn't necessarily have to be an MD. No. In some jurisdictions, a coroner, a coroner only needs to be over the age of 18 and... Um, um, you know, so I could moral, be. Yeah, coroner. they can run. They run up for, uh, as an elected official, uh-huh. sometimes under uh, a particular political party, like a Democratic versus Republican coroner. So they can huh. run for it politically, and people will vote for them. And in, in many cases, they might be uh, funeral home directors or people who might have a vested interest in the results of what uh, huh. the determinations might be. So it's it's a system that is it's actually a holdover from the British system. So coroner comes from the word crowner, from the crown. Mm -hmm. And it was an estate tax system because the crown had an interest in finding out how people died. If they died, for example, uh, as a result of suicide or homicide or a crime against the crown, Mm -hmm. then the crown would take their property. So that's why it became in the interest of the crown to find out why people died. 
Oh, okay. So they could take their property if they committed suicide because that was a crime. That was a crime, yeah. But if it's a if it was a murder, no, not uh, unless the heirs murdered, murdered by their heir. Yeah. yeah. If the heirs murdered them, then the heirs don't get to inherit, and oh. then the crown will take the property as well. I see. Okay, that makes sense. That Death makes sense. investigation in the United States is done on a county by county, sometimes state basis, but it's a real mishmash. Yeah. Right. But um, in either a medical examiner or a coroner system, the person doing the autopsies is always a forensic pathologist like Dr. Melody. Well, it should be a forensic pathologist. Sometimes they're just hospital-based pathologists that's who right. don't have that extra year of training. And that's part of the problem that we have in this country is we only have about half the number of forensic pathologists doing autopsies. A lot of the autopsies are either not being done or being done by people who aren't trained. That's what I, another thing that I was going to ask you. I mean, the uh, uh, the medical examiner's office in in the book is portrayed as severely understaffed and underfunded. And is that is that something that is quite common? That was these my days? reality. Yes. And yeah. so when I, I, it's actually based on my own experiences to some degree, working uh, in San Francisco as an assistant yeah. medical examiner for nine years. And when I arrived at the time, the office was still in the Hall of Justice. It has subsequently moved. So just so you know, the next. Uh, Part of the series, Crosscut, is going to be set in the new facility. Yeah. So uh, there is a theme in the book about the fact that they're planning on moving to a new facility. But while I was there for nine years, we were working on porcelain tables uh, that we had to be careful not to drop our instruments on or they Museum might Museum quality. The, the, wow. the flushing toilet kind of mechanism, that was real. Wow. Yeah. They, had, they had the glass specimen jars that, that, that Jesse complains so about. So picturesque. They were, they were really, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, all of that is accurate. Um, even, wow. even the shower scene in it, I'm not going to give that away. That's a spoiler. But there's a shower scene. That actually happened. That's nonfiction. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, and, and is there, uh, 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 because of this, are there autopsies that should be done that are not being done? They're just like, you know what? Uh, let's just, that's probably natural cause. Let's call it natural causes next. That's a great question. <laughs> well, what we have in this country right now is we have several crises, and one of them is the opioid crisis. Yes. And as a result, there are many offices that are overwhelmed with opioid deaths. And given the numbers that are staggering um, and overwhelming the yeah. staffing, sometimes triage decisions have to be made about whether or not someone's going to get an autopsy, or maybe based on the scene and circumstances, we'll just do an external examination, look at the outside of the body, and yeah. then draw blood for toxicology, but not go through the full right. autopsy. Sort of a mini autopsy. Right. And there is actually currently a debate within my profession about whether that is proper forensic practice or not, or you could be missing something. What happens if you send out the blood under the assumption that it's an overdose, and then it comes back negative? You don't have any drugs in the system. Then what? Then what? Right. Undeter well, then sometimes you're Do stuck you with undetermined. You keep the body until... Like no, you, no, you, oh. would, you would externally examine the body, take the blood, and then return the body to the family. So that oh, way... Oh, so you if, wouldn't keep it in the fridge you wouldn't keep that's it not the right no. no this is this is one Cooler. of the reasons why the autopsy <laughs> yeah. this is why the autopsy is so important is because yeah. the right. doctor has to collect everything yeah. for right. all future tests okay. all right so you once. can't right okay and we have a professional organization which is the national association of medical examiners right on, on which i i'm a member and i participate in the board and i bet their conference is good fun. <laughs> it, is, it, it is actually it's a lot yeah. of fun. i mean tj comes with me yeah. to conference what would you yeah. say i mean you yeah. as a layperson yeah you, there, there was one year that it was that it was on a cruise ship and there were what <laughs> yeah 300 <laughs> forensic right. pathologists on a cruise ship, and no, yet said, there was no murder mystery. I know. I said, somebody's going to die. I, I felt oh, like that was just, so God, that because, needs, let's do that as one of your books in the series. Well, you would, you would think from watching television that there's a medical examiner on every corner, right? Yeah. But 
Um, there's only about 500 of them in the whole country. Wow. Yeah. And that's half the number that we need to, to yeah. cover the current investigative workload. Right. And that workload is only growing. And is that um, that because of budget cuts or is that because a, a lot of people, not that many people want to become medical examiners? It's a combination of both. I mean, when it comes to budget cuts, dead men don't vote. So anytime yes. there yeah. are cuts to the county budget, which there always seem to be, yes. it's an easy place to take cuts and nobody complains no. until yes. they need that office. Right. And God forbid right. you should need that office, but yep. that's a, yep. you know, it's, it's a small sliver of the population. One other thing to consider is that as a medical specialty, uh, forensic pathology is one of those fields where an extra year of training, so that extra yeah. fellowship in forensics, actually depresses your salary by about, it could be up to $100,000 a year for your entire career. So you can actually make more money coming just out of hospital pathology training then if you take that extra year of training huh. for forensics and now you're working for a county system. Because it's a government job. Because yeah. it's a government job. Now, there wow. used to be benefits associated with being in a stable county right. job, government job, but yeah. the benefits have deteriorated. Pensions right. are no longer there anymore. Right. And the salaries are not commensurate with what uh, right. physicians can make right. working in a hospital. There are, there are still advantages. You know, there are no emergency autopsies. They'll still be dead tomorrow. Right, you know? right. There's yeah. no so call. Yeah, but it's a, it's although a, Jesse Jessica's is getting called in the middle yeah. of the night so, all the yeah, time. Yeah, that depends on the jurisdiction, actually. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Some, yeah. some jurisdictions, so for example, the nine years I was here in San Francisco, I would get called out to death scenes. Right. Um, most of them were homicides, but every once in a while it would be a case where the investigators weren't sure what, what it was, mm-hmm. and then our job was to tell them yeah. whether we thought it was suspicious or help right. them figure out right. how to triage the case. Right. And um, it, where I am right now in Alameda County, I work for a sheriff corner, so I'm not routinely called out to scenes. I can go if I need to or if right. they need me for some reason, but I don't routinely right. go. Right, right. Um, the, uh, there, there are so many show, television shows, Bones, and uh, there's so many forensics-type shows, not necessarily about medical examiners, but uh, a, a great deal of interest in forensics and a lot of uh, students expressing interest in learning it. Does that, has that actually translated in a glut of young, eager forensics and professionals, or, or is that just kind of people think they want to and then they find out what's involved and they're like, eee. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, not. It's, not even, it's not even the icky factor. It's more the length of time it takes to train. To train. And then the realization that doing extra training means I'm going to make less money. And, and what does a, what, not, I'm not asking you, yeah. but in general, the rain, what, is, what is the salary for someone who's... Oh, so, a, I mean, like med- salaries in, as a forensic pathologist are in the range of about $200,000 a year to $300,000 yeah. a year on the higher end. Right. But it depends on the jurisdiction. And the thing that a lot of government agencies don't think about is just like any professional, we're going to be doing cost of living calculations. So just because a salary yeah. looks good if it's in a very expensive city like San Francisco yes. or New York, um, it's going to be much more difficult to recruit people. Right. So we found that there are a lot of uh, eager young people who want to get into the field. Um, But that's only been in the last couple of years, really. So I don't know if it's translated to the profession yet. I I think what's been exciting to me in terms of the outreach that we've had for young people is that a lot of them have read Working Stiff. We were surprised. I mean, we thought the book would be mostly picked up by, you know, adults. And then we find that in some of our book events for Working Stiff, we've got middle schoolers and high schoolers coming to us and saying, we love this book and I want to do forensic science. Yeah, yeah. I found that with Stiff as well. A lot of a lot of young people. So I think because of some of the television shows and the mm. and kind of so, the, the mystery solving element of it. 
I think the television shows have definitely yeah. fed that, but I've got to say, I've got to shout out to the teachers out there. Yeah. The, the high school mm -hmm. teachers are starting to recognize that forensic mm -hmm. science is a wonderful way yes. of bringing together yep. all the different disciplines and putting them together because you have yep. physics of blood stain analysis yep. and blood spatter. You have biology with regards to uh, medicine. Yep. Um, you have psychology in terms mm -hmm. of the forensic psychology. There's some, there's math yep. involved. So yep. you can integrate all of the yep. science in one discipline and the students are clearly right. engaged. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Are there enough programs for all the people who are interested in becoming? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, the, I mean, when I was applying to schools, I don't remember yeah. seeing any for, forensics programs. There are. In fact, the training programs sometimes don't fill. Is that right, Doc? Well, that's the thing. There's yeah. There are a lot of forensic programs throughout the country, and I actually have some of them listed on my website yeah. as well, and um, yeah. I, I'm on Twitter, yeah. so I connected. Yeah. There are a lot of professors who will tweet at me or, or send me information about them because yeah. they're looking for students. Right. And the, the thing that people have to recognize if they're going to go into the forensic sciences is that um, you're going to get background checked. <laughs> so you have to be on good behavior. If I see. Gotta, oh, okay. If you've got a history or, yeah. um, of, you know, if you've got an arrest record um, or yeah. any kind of uh, problem right. with drugs in the past, it could potentially damage your career options. Right. If you're it. asked to testify in a case. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about something that, that isn't actually in the book, but um, uh, when someone dies in a, a hospital during surgery, say, uh, and there's a question of, was it, is it malpractice? Was it the hospital's fault? Um, not, it's not a criminal it's not, you know, murder or suicide, but it's unclear what happened in the family. Do, do hospitals do their own autopsies or does the, can, I guess there are private um, pathologists that they can hire? All of the above. 1-800-AUTOPSY. So yeah, there is. There actually is. Right, there is. Those are three different things. So there are many options, and a lot of it depends on the jurisdiction. If the person dies in the hospital as a result of surgery, the first question I have to ask, though, is why are they in surgery in the first place? Because if the surgery was due to they needed to have that surgery because they were shot... Yes. then automatically that case is going to go to the right. coroner or the medical examiner. Right, right, right. Um, if they came in because they had a fall at home and they broke their hip and then they had surgery. Well, again, that falls under the jurisdiction of the coroner or medical examiner. Even though there's not foul play, uh -huh. the fact that there was an oh, accident or I injury see. involved, by definition, it means that it's going to get uh. go the forensic route. Okay. But if they're having that surgery for something like cancer, some sort of natural disease, right. then that case is not going to be reported to the coroner or medical examiner examiner. Um, if there's a question about a surgical error, options available for the family are to have the autopsy done in-house in the same hospital by the pathologist or to have another hospital yeah. do it because there are, you know, the body can be transported to mm -hmm. another facility or a, a med university medical center or to hire a private uh, pathologist right. to do autopsies. I've done a few of those myself, but I, I what try is to... That, what does yeah. that run you? Oh, um, well, they, it could be, I mean, on the cheap end, they're about $2,500. On the high end, about $5,000. Okay, yeah. um, but it really depends yeah. on the complexity of the case. Right. Like if you need to take uh, special stains, and then if the pathologist needs to testify right. in court, right. that's when the right. costs start to get in incurred. Right. Um, in many cases, a lot of local coroner's offices will also take those cases as private cases, and they're usually less expensive mm -hmm. 
to be done privately through the coroner's office than to hire okay. somebody from outside. But the best thing to do is first call the coroner or medical examiner and talk right. and, and, and talk tell them to, what your concerns are. Yes. They, yeah. they may decide. A, a coroner or medical examiner examines death if they're sudden, unexpected, or violent. Yeah. But right. they don't always necessarily know the circumstances. Right. And they may want to take the case after the right. fact. But right. yeah, hospitals do do their own autopsies, right. but only if the manner of death is natural. Then they they are uh, they under the law can investigate yeah. that death, or you can hire an, an outside natural person. meaning. From it d- it happened during disease or injury, right? It no, happened no, during not, not disease injury, or aging. Disease or aging, yeah, right. But but if if somebody's having surgery and something goes terribly wrong and it's unclear, ah. if what did the surgeon screw up? Right. So this is the question, and it, th- those are borderline cases. So in New York City, where mm-hmm. I worked for. Um, my fellowship training for two years, we actually had a separate manner of death called therapeutic complication, Uh which was our way of saying, well, it's not exactly natural because they didn't die of their cancer. Yes. But it's not exactly an accident because it wasn't an inadvertent oops, like they didn't amputate the wrong arm or anything like that. They were doing surgery that they were supposed to be doing, but the patient had a complication either as a result of their underlying disease or the high risk nature of the surgery or the technical difficulties, technical complications. I mean, a, a surgeon can make a technical error and it not be malpractice. Right. Okay. Some of the technical errors might be just because it's a difficult operation. Yes. Anybody would yes. have made that error. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean there's, there's a lawsuit there. Yes. Right. Um, those kind of cases can be referred to a coroner and medical examiner. It depends on the jurisdiction about whether they'll take them. Right. And if they don't, I mean, the other thing that people should feel comfortable about understanding is that the pathologists in the hospital, even though it's the same hospital where surgery was done, the pathologists are a totally different realm. They're a totally different department. They're not in the business of covering up for the surgeons. Right. So they can do an honest, respectable job as an autopsy. And you can even have an outside pathologist come and view them. I sometimes get called to do that as well. Because I work as a medical legal consultant. So I will will be asked to do that as well. Right. Um, And that brings me to my next question. Um, in first cut, we see a medical examiner who's under a certain amount of pressure to declare a suicide when the evidence is suggesting what, what Jesse feels may be a murder. Um, and there's pressure in the form of um, bribe, in the form of threats of injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my question is, to what extent does this kind of thing happen in the real world? I mean, the, the, the medical examiner's conclusions, murder, suicide, whatever, um, uh, the case can turn on that, yeah. and uh, there's uh, sometimes a lot of a lot of things at stake. And I'm just curious how often that kind so, of thing happens. Yeah, so we actually did a study of this. I, I did oh, a wow. survey of uh, forensic pathologists to find out whether they feel at times pressured by families or by uh, political appointees, for example, a coroner, yes. to change their determination. Yes, and uh, we found that it's actually pretty common. I think I'm trying to remember the actual numbers. I think it was about close to 60% of pathologists at some point in their career had experienced some sort of pressure. The majority of pressure seems to come from family members. And the reason it happens is because if they make a determination of suicide, in some cases, insurance isn't going to pay out. Or there may be religious prohibitions to suicide that can be very uh, distressing to the family and they don't want to accept that. So the majority of pressure seems to come from that. There is a minority of pressure. We're talking about, you know, in the teens to 20 percent where it can come from political appointees because they think that it's something different from what the pathologist did. Or somebody paying them to... 
there can be there can be political pressure. And ultimately, this is a stressful environment that you could potentially work with because um, the decisions that you make, whether something is a homicide, a suicide or an accident, not only has financial repercussions for the family in terms of insurance yeah. or inheritance, but it could also mean people will go to jail. Mm-hmm, and right. so you want to make sure that whatever determination yeah. you're doing is scientifically valid and accurate and defensible in court. Right. It's the ultimate defensive medicine is what I say. Yeah. Yeah. In writing for First Cut, we really wanted to reflect what Dr. Melanick and her colleagues do uh, accurately. Mm-hmm. But it's a noir detective novel in the American <laughs> tradition. Yeah. Right. So we did, I don't know if you could say that we amped things up, turned up the volume a little mm-hmm. bit on things, but what, what Dr. Tesca goes through in the yeah. book could very well happen. Yeah. 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 And has happened to some of my colleagues. Yeah. And 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 your, yourself, have you? And myself, yes. Yeah. I mean, there, like I said, not just the shower scene, but there, there, there's also a scene where uh, she goes to a death scene, and um, the family of the deceased are there yeah. and are very upset. And that also happened to me, and has happened to me on multiple occasions, wow. where I've gone out to a death scene and the family wants to see the decedent, but they're not in a condition where um, they're viewable, yeah. and it can cause a lot of tension, and it can be very, yeah. it's upsetting for us too because we want to help them, but we don't want them to remember their loved one in this way. Yeah. But we still need to do our job. We still need to be out there, sometimes for hours, collecting evidence. Mm-hmm. And it's With it's the body lying stressful. there. Yeah. You can't move it until you've documented the scene. Right, That's right. awfully hard to see if it's your nephew or your son. Or sure, your yeah, yeah. Do you call her Dr. Melanick at home? <laughs> <laughs> to get when, my when attention. I need to, when I need to get her attention, <laughs> yeah. yes, I do. I say doc, or sometimes I say dottoressa, <laughs> because um, I'm, I'm quarter Italian, and we went to Italy many years ago and, and um, went to visit my family in Italy. Yeah. And when I try, I don't speak Italian, yeah. but I, I speak French, so I just kind of spoke French and stuck an A on the end of everything. <laughs> and spoke with my hands a lot, too. Yeah. And um, when I tried to describe what Judy does, I described yeah. her as a dottore, and everybody corrected me because in Italian, that's a gendered noun. So uh-huh. a woman is a dottoressa. Oh, okay. Which is just so cool. I, 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 I call her dottoressa. Yeah, but but I, also, well, I, I, you know, we've, we've been together for a very long time. We met when we were 18. We started dating when we were 18 or 19. Wow. Uh, so I watched Dr. Melanick go through medical school. Yeah. And I, I know what she did to get where she yeah. is today. And I, and I really respect yeah. Um, he, he should have an honorary there. medical degree, though, yeah. <laughs> having gone through it. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't always call her Dr. Melanie sometimes. <laughs> All right. I may start calling her Dr. Yeah. Dottoressa. Yeah. Fish tacos, Dottoressa. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, by the way, uh, uh, you yeah. mentioned that Jesse swears in Polish. Yes. The reason she swears in Polish is because when the two of us started wanting to write a character, write, write yeah. a, a, a piece of fiction, um, our protagonist had to have very shallow immigrant roots because the immigrant experience is very important to both of us. Yeah. My grandparents were immigrants, and Dr. Melanick is an immigrant. She came yeah. to the United States when she was five years old. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, My first we, language isn't English, it's Hebrew. I wow. learned English much later. Yeah, the only two yeah. phrases she knew when she was five were, I love you and open the door, please. <laughs> the rest of the language she learned largely through Sesame Street is yeah. what she tells me. <laughs> but um, Polish heritage is something that we share. Uh, okay. Her family were Polish Jews, yeah. and I'm quarter Polish Catholic. And although my family doesn't speak Polish anymore, like most Polish Americans, yeah. one of the first things you lose is the language because it's a very, very yeah. complex and hard yeah. language. Yeah. Um, Dr. Teska, Jesse Teska, her mom is from Poland. Yeah. And her dad is an American who was abusive. She comes from a, from a broken yeah. home. So she and her brother Tommy, um, mom spoke to them 
only in Polish when they were kids in order to hide things from dad, essentially. Right. So it's a secret right. language between yeah. her and her brother. Yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes, you know, just like, well, yeah, with me, the Italian slips out of me sometimes in curses because my yeah. mom, my mom never cursed in English. She only cursed in, in Italian. Yeah. Yeah. And once yeah, I started yeah. le learning a little Italian and learning what she was actually saying, it was pretty yeah. uh, scandalizing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and my grandmother never cursed in Polish because it would it would turn her be right. reds. She was very proper. <laughs> yeah, but it's one. Yeah, it, there's there's probably a dozen Polish curses yeah. in the book. If you need to brush up on your Polish Polish curses, there, <laughs> this is the book for you. Um, but we did so, a lot of research and we consulted friends of ours who are Polish American yeah. as well to get make sure the phrases yeah, yeah. were correct. And I love her. The, Jesse's full. It's Czeslawa, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful. Czeslawa. Yeah. Czeslawa. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Her full her full name is Czeslawa, and the the short version of that is Cheshire. Yeah. So yeah. that becomes Americanized to Jesse. Jesse yeah. yeah. Which, uh, by the way, my, when we were back east where I come from uh, for an event last month. And my mom is the Polish-American in, in, in my family. She's half Polish, half Italian. Uh -huh. And a friend of hers who was also Polish-American said that her mom's name yeah. was Czesława and she went by Jesse. Oh, perfect. So I was like, oh, wow. All right. How do you like that? All right. <laughs> right on. I thought I was making it up. Great. Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> Even better. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Um, I want to, uh, uh, you guys have a section of the book that you, uh, you were willing to read a little bit of the okay. book. And yeah. I thought that would be, a, maybe we're going to shift a little bit from the, um, the autopsy room to the, the writer's room. Uh, so I thought we'd do the reading. So do you want to introduce it, TJ? Sure. Yeah. So this, uh, this reading is from, um, the evening of Jesse's first day at work, she has just started working at the San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office. She went in, did an ordinary autopsy uh, that day. But then that night, she gets a call from Dr. Michael Stone, who is her boss, the man who recruited her to this job. And he says, hey, listen, there's, there's been uh, 187, a, a, a homicide in the tenderloin, and you're not on call. I am, but I'd like you to come out and just see how we do things here. So uh, that's where we're, we're picking up this story. Dr. Stone steered me toward a corner coffee shop on the southeast side of the intersection. It was called Café Wifi. The place had big picture windows looking out in two directions. Some of them had been shot through, and from the cones of force beveled into the glass, I could tell the direction was from the inside out. A couple of tables and a few chairs had been overturned. Evidence markers sectioned off drops of blood near the door. There was more, a thin spattered mist on one window. Uniformed police guarded the perimeter up against the inevitable crowd, and plainclothes officers were interviewing people at tables and booths. Up this way, Stone said, and went out to Geary Street. It was closed off, the entire block between Polk and Larkin, one giant crime scene. Stone led us to a mid-block restaurant called Kim San 88. A uniformed officer holding a clipboard stood post in the doorway. Doctors Michael Stone and Jesse Tesca, San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office, star 202, call number 0 Charlie 7. Stone rattled off. The cop checked his watch, wrote in his pad, and stood aside for us without a word. Kimson 88 was a takeout joint. There were four or five tables, a cashier counter, and a pass-through to the kitchen. The owners had installed their ancestor shrine in a corner alcove, a gold Buddha with a couple of pieces of fruit and a brimming shot glass. The fruit was starting to rot. 
The dead man lay on his back, just shy of the kitchen doorway. He was young, Asian, with a round, ruddy face, brown eyes, and short black hair, full lips on a wide mouth stalled in a half-hinged grimace. Short, body length maybe five foot four or five. I couldn't eyeball his weight because he was wearing clothes too bulky for the weather, even with the fog wind blowing down Geary. There was a red hole in the middle of his forehead. Blood stained the white tile floor, a neat pool under his hair, and a separate splotch a couple of feet to the left of it. Hey, Keith. Stone addressed a husky black man in a turtleneck and sports coat. He was leaning over a bullet casing by a numbered marker. He cocked his head and examined me aslant. Hello, Doc. Nine mil shells, the man said. He was about Stone's age, with deadpan brown eyes under boxy brows and a mustache like a scowl. He wore round, black-rimmed eyeglasses and had a beaver-felt fedora and moved around the crime scene more nimbly than his size suggested he should. Stone introduced me. Inspector Keith Jones, this is our new assistant medical examiner, Dr. Jesse Tesco. I offered a collegial smile, and the detective nodded back, his eyes thawing a little. Do you have a presumptive ID? Stone asked. Eugene Chen, a.k.a. Lumpy, the detective replied. System has him as a petty thief. He last went down a couple of months for, for breaking into cars out by Lincoln Park. Got out three weeks ago. We gathered over the corpse of Eugene Lumpy Chen. This time he tried to boost a laptop. Witnesses report Lumpy coming into the coffee shop on the corner there, looking around like he's meeting a friend. He stops in front of a man working on his laptop. Lumpy grabs the computer and runs for the door, but the laptop's owner pulls a pistol and fires several shots. He chases Lumpy out onto the street, and Lumpy ducks in here. That's where the guy gets him. The detective had a miniature flashlight in his hand. He used it to point around. After the shooter drops Lumpy, he walks over to him, picks up the laptop, puts it in his bag, and takes off. The pen light flashed to the four corners of the room. Security cameras all over the place and on the street, too. If they were recording, we should have multiple angles. How many rounds? Stone asked. The detective grinned. That's your job to tell me, ain't it? It seemed a harmless enough jab to me, but Stone bristled. How many casings and bullets has CSI recovered, he said. Eleven casings and one slug so far in the wall by the register, Inspector Jones replied. I'd like to know what you can tell me right now. Mike Stone pulled a pair of purple exam gloves from his pocket and, to my shock, handed them to me. Dr. Tesca, would you please oblige Inspector Jones? He was glaring at the detective. The nitrile gloves were sized for Mike's enormous hands and left flappy stems at the tips of my fingers, like condoms. My new <laughs> boss wanted me to perform a field test as part of some interdivisional pissing contest? Okay. I bent to examine Lumpy Chen's body, starting with the visible wound. It was a semi-circular defect in the midline forehead with no visible soot or stippling. When I pinched the edges of the torn skin together, the margins meshed in a ragged line. Exit wound of the forehead, I told Jones. Chen was wearing a leather letterman jacket from a chain store over a dark hooded sweatshirt. I need a light. Jones handed me his pen light. I used it to nudge aside the edge of the hoodie at the dead man's collar. The flashlight's beam revealed at least three other layers of shirts. With almost all his skin covered, I couldn't assess whether there were track marks or gang tattoos. I unzipped to the jacket, eased the shirts aside, and stuck the pen light under there. It lit up two red star-shaped wounds in the dead man's chest. I found another next to his belly button. At least three to the back, all exiting out the front torso. Keith Jones was eagerly jotting these physical findings into his notebook. Something else occurred to me as I looked at Lumpy Chen's eyes, which stared out, lopsided, in two directions. Who flipped him? The detective glanced at Stone before he answered me. Witnesses report Lumpy fell on his face after the shot to the head with the laptop underneath him. The shooter turned him over to get it back. 
I nodded and pointed out the small crimson blob to the left of Chen's head. That's where he landed. He wasn't prone for long. Your gunman didn't waste any time worrying about shooting a man in the head before he took that laptop back. I stood carefully and stepped back from the body and bloodstains. Okay, Inspector Jones, I'm going to give you four perforating gunshot wounds right now. Three to the torso, one to the head. But understand this is my ballpark estimate. We won't know the final number until we get him back to the morgue. Matches what the witnesses are saying, Inspector Jones said. We'll see if we can retrieve video, too. Dr. Stone was smirking. I had passed his test. I handed Jones' pen-like back to him. The detective leapt away from it in mock horror, seeing as I just used the thing to poke at a corpse. I laughed out loud, but then my eye fell on the open door. At the corner of Larkin, hemmed in by police tape, stood a clutch of news vans and cameras on tripods. That was the last thing I needed, my laughing mug, live from the scene of a brutal murder, all over the 11 o'clock news on my first day of work. This book um, includes what must surely be the first ever fight scene where the weapon is a bucket of human brains. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying. It's true. Yeah. It is. Kudos. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually well, had we're... formaldehyde in the, accidentally spilled in my eye, and it's it's a formidable weapon. Yeah, we we the, yeah. the way that came about was we were doing that combat scene, and we were in the place <laughs> where it happens in the morgue. Yeah. And I asked Judy, so what's nearby that you could use as a weapon? Yeah. And that's she looked around inside her imagination of what is nearby <laughs> right. there, and yeah. that's what she found. Yeah. I right. mean, it, m- most of the way we write is I come up with ideas. Um, I email them to TJ. <laughs> he <laughs> he works on them, emails them back. So we do a lot of emailing back and forth because yeah. I'm still working. I, yeah. I still work as a medical yeah. examiner. Yeah. Um, There are six bodies that Jesse ends up, uh, I think it's six, I I may have lost count, but um, (laughs) we got Lumpy Chen, Rebecca Cochero, the LA woman, Graciela the mule, and the evil yellow eyes, and maybe a couple of others, the the coyote victim yeah. also she does she does a bunch of of uh, this is one of the really fun things about writing a book like this is yeah. there's there's no shortage of red herrings yeah. because every day that that Judy yeah. goes into work right. there's dead people yeah. so which yeah. ones of those are important to the plot well you've right. got to figure that out right and now do you in writing a book like this do you start with the six autopsies and build a book around it I mean, because she's a she's a. a, well, a I, we a started with examiner. a story. We started with right. the, the story of the shooting in the cafe. That that is actually inspired by um, an actual case that I got called out to a scene I see. in uh, San Francisco. It was at night. It was exactly what I described, which is a laptop got jacked, and the person mm-hmm. who was stealing the laptop got shot by the victim of the robbery. The robbery. Yeah. And oh, okay. um, I, you know, besides the fact that. I was there to answer all the questions for the police about the gunshot wounds. It just it started bugging me. You know, it was that question that 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 you can't answer, which is why would anybody kill somebody over a laptop? I mean, right. what's so important yeah. on that laptop yes. that you kill somebody over it? Yeah. And so it's that what if question. Right. That's the seed that starts right. a novel. Now the the facts about what what were, were on that laptop. You didn't end up finding out in real life. What was on that laptop? I didn't, but that's that's the beauty yeah. of writing fiction, right? Because you can answer it however. You <laughs> right. This yeah. this would drive me bananas. Yeah. But right. Is is I right. will ask Judy. You know, she'll tell me this fascinating story. I'll say, so did they get the guy? Yeah. She says, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, didn't yeah. you ask the DA? She says, I don't go lurking around the DA's office to ask yeah. about old cases. I've yeah. got new cases, and so do they. No, I don't. Yeah. Know. So every day when I go in the morgue, I have another two or three cases, and any given time, I can have anywhere from thirty to forty open cases. Yeah. Some of which have 
have, you know, I'm waiting for toxicology to come back. Others, the bodies haven't been identified. And as the reports and the paperwork come in, just because you do an autopsy, it doesn't mean you're done. You have yeah, to wait right, until you get right. your laboratory results yeah. back, and then you have to sit down and do the intellectual work of typing it all up right. and having answers for the family, sometimes talking to them on the phone. Right. So I'll be juggling anywhere from 30 to 40 open cases. It's not unusual for me to get the pressure, too, of get these cases closed, yeah, just right. like Jesse experiences in the book. Yeah, yeah and, and the fun thing about fiction is we get to control that process. Yeah, yeah, so yeah the, right. So the, the important deaths in the book we knew when they were going to happen and what right. they were going to be. Right. And then a few of the others got filled in along the way. Right, right. Do you have a certain minimum number of autopsies per book that you're <laughs> not, not required? Really, no. But, but we, no. do have, we do have a list where we keep track yes. of them yeah. so you that know, we every, don't every have too many overdoses. As a writer, you have, you have different d- documents open, you know, and most yeah. people have an outline. You have a timeline. Well, we have a fairly, I, I don't know if we it's unique, but it's unusual, yeah. which is a dead bodies timeline. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because right. she does the autopsy on a dead body one day and then she gets results on another right. day and then something else happens right. on another day. Day. So we right. have that. Yeah, we do have. And yeah. and yes, we also, I asked Judy to, to come up with, I'm like, you know, I think we're getting a little bit heavy on the homicides. I need more accidents to sprinkle yeah. in there. So yeah, right. give, me, a, give me some examples you know, of accidents. Like what's an easy case? Yeah. Or what's yeah. a hard yeah. case? Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I mean, there's a, a lot to juggle here because you've got, you've got all of the, you, you want to have a, a, because the autopsies are so interesting. There's all this wonderful sort of juicy forensics detail. Literally like, juicy. <laughs> literally juicy. Like you are in, you're in, in the room with her. I mean, you, you and, and there's uh, a lot of just really interesting explanation of what's every step of an autopsy. I feel like, TJ, do you feel like you could go into a morgue and like pretty much do an autopsy at this <laughs> point? Hell no. <laughs> no, I've witnessed one autopsy. When uh, Judy was training at training. UCLA, yeah, as a, as a, in pathology at UCLA, yeah. and, uh, to set it up, it was on the weekend, and I was alone with the with the technologist, and I was planning on we were planning on going to buy a bicycle, so you right. were going to pick me up, but then the whole case got delayed, so I had him come in only to take notes, and I got permission. Yeah, she asked me if yeah, I would yeah. come yeah. and actually help. Uh, he, uh, so like, he was taking know, notes for to me. do what what they call scribing. Yeah, okay. So you just write down what I tell you to write because you and don't I, have the nice exactly. microphone like they have on TV. Exactly, right. yeah. and Except I told him you don't. Have to look. All you have to do, all you have to do is write down stuff on the board. Yeah, You're yeah. an English major. Except that then her boss came yeah. in, who is who is one of these professors who really wants to teach. And uh-huh. when he learned that I was, you know, a layman, he was yeah. like, "Oh, well, come right over here. You have to feel this. That's the duodenum." And I'm like, "I don't want to feel the duodenum. No, thank you." And I didn't want to be here. Yeah, I managed to stay upright and I didn't vomit into my mask. But that's the that's the last autopsy that I will. But but it was funny though because at the end of the autopsy, you know, after we finished everything up and we cleaned up, he said. Me, I'm really hungry, and I said, "See, see, it is yeah, physical it's, labor." It is. It's manual yeah, labor. because people it's always say, labor. "Oh, like you probably lose your appetite," but you don't because you're standing up and you're working for hours, so you do get hungry. Yeah, no, yeah, she has two fish tacos every yeah. Friday. <laughs> you can attest to that. I'm here to tell you, yeah, yeah. Do you remember uh, your first autopsy? Um, my first autopsy that I remember was actually... Well, we uh, covered the first your first forensic autopsy in working still. Yeah. The first forensic autopsy was uh, a guy who had been... Um, well, it was... I didn't actually do the autopsy. Somebody else did the autopsy. But I went to the scene where there was a crane accident. Oh, that one, And yeah. so that that's in working stiff. Right. But my first autopsy... I mean, ultimately, everybody's first autopsy is, is the there... cadaver in medical school. Right. So in my introduction, we, we, you, we I think we called her Thelma. You know, like we, we, you, you don't know their actual name, yeah. so you just name your cadaver. Yeah. These, and these you get, are people whose bodies, yeah. well, you know, but they, yes. these that are people whose bodies have been donated. God bless yes. them. I mean, I'm I so, it's such a blessing. And you know this yeah. 
from from writing stiff that the people who donate their bodies to science so that students can learn yes. how to dissect them yeah um it's just it's such a blessing because I'll, i'm forever grateful to thelma yeah. for doing that she yeah. she was an elderly woman she died from cancer but we studied her body from head to yeah. toe literally yeah. um throughout the entire anatomy class my uh my first year in medical school, and and all of us. Benefited. What's the last autopsy that you've done? Can you tell us? What uh, most no, I can't because can't. it's I'm I'm yeah. currently working, and I yeah. can't disclose. The cases. Um, some of the medical schools now. I don't know if yours did, but they have a memorial service mm-hmm. at the end. Yes, of, hers did. Um, they did that at anatomy UCSF. class, and the I went to one at UCSF, and the st- and I wasn't sure what what did what would go on. I'm obviously not an open casket. Yeah. you know the the but the students had prepared. One of them composed a song. They read poetry. I mean, the the gratitude and respect was really moving. And and that's something that's really true in forensics as well. I mean, one of the things that television shows tend to get wrong is they often will portray forensic pathologists as being somewhat dismissive of the bodies or making fun um, or mocking the dead or the families. That is never the case. In my my 17 years working as a forensic pathologist, that's rare that somebody would do that. The majority of us, we know that we have, it's it's a rare privilege to be able to work with the deceased and to give closure to their family. And we have a tremendous, we might make fun of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We'll joke about, yeah. you know, the absurd situations we find ourselves in or our own um, errors or stupidity or things, silly things yeah. we've done, but we never make fun of the deceased. Judy and, and her colleagues are interacting with these families uh, at a critical time and they have answers for them. Mm-hmm. So they're not the police officers who have yeah. to go and ring the doorbell and tell someone that something tragic has happened to them. Yep. And they're, they're not the social workers who work with those people for months and months to help them deal with their grief. Right. But they're in between those two mm-hmm. and they have answers to real right. concrete questions. Yeah. So You're providing doing, the real closure. Yeah, yeah do, doing grief counseling is an important part of the yeah. job. Yep. Yeah. For sure. And, yeah. and it's something that I didn't really know about forensics until I witnessed it. Right. Hand. One thinks of it as a very solitary, you're in the morgue late. Oh, yeah, yeah. People always say, oh, you must like it. Your patients never complain. But I don't think of the decedents <laughs> as my patients. It's their families that are my patients. I mean, who they're the ones that I have that doctor-patient that? relationship with. Oh, I get that all the time. I, yeah. I guess from other doc- other doctors. doctors. Other doctors. Yeah. And yeah. and also this, this notion of like, oh, you're not going to get sued because you're not going to kill anybody, which is also not true. Because if I testify in, in correctly in court, somebody can go to the um, you know, to the death, get the death penalty. If I um, miss a mistake, you know, I miss a homicide, then then a killer right. goes free. A, a killer goes free, so, might kill right. again, and yeah. that happens. So, so right. I, I mean, there there are there is a certain amount of risk, right. and uh, um, and also the aspect of public health. I mean, the other thing people say to forensic pathologists is, "Oh, you don't save lives," and that's not true either. Because if we identify uh, meningitis, we can notify public health, and then other family members or other children in the preschool are going to get uh, antibiotics so that they don't get sick. If right. we identify carbon monoxide poisoning, then we can repair the generator or whatever <clears throat> it caused it and prevent other people right. in that Badly hotel from Badly wired dying. hot tubs. Yeah. I prevented oh, death yeah. from that Jeez. too. That yeah. happens. So, I mean, all of these things, we need <laughs> to have that skill set to be able to yeah. identify hazards. So when other people aren't picking up on it, we're thinking about it. Yeah. 
badly wired hot how often does that happen well you, you, yeah you we did, had did one. one of those where it Un- looked like a heart attack yeah wow yeah wow. so it was an old case it was a heart attack of, well it was an old case of mine of a man um this is many years ago of a man who had uh died um after being in a hot tub and he had been taken to the emergency room and declared dead and his doctor was going to sign the death certificate but i read the report and i saw the hot tub thing and i it made me very uncomfortable so i had the Department of Public Works go out and check to make sure that the hot tub was functioning properly, and wow. that's when they discovered that it wasn't wired properly. So we brought him in and didn't. Was it? No, I think. In fact, I think yeah. what they discovered was, it was tampered with. Though it well, was, yes, it was brand <laughs> yeah. new so, wiring. Everything yeah. was all so old it was and a murder. Yeah. And, well, no, well, I, no, that's I, not a murder. That's a cover up. <laughs> I was. I, th- I think what happened was that oh, oh, it wasn't okay. maintained properly, and when okay. he died, the facility tried to. Bring it up to speed, but... And actually, uh, you just raised something very yeah. important, which whether or not it's a murder, that's not up to Judy. That's up yes. to the DA. Right, So right. When, You're when, just, a, right. When, when a medical yeah. examiner says something is a homicide and the homicide detectives are investigating it and the DA charges it as a homicide, that word means three different things. I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Ooh, we've got some great questions. I can't wait to... Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so the process of collaboration. I've never done that as an author. You guys are still so together. Practic- <laughs> so yeah. it seems to be yeah. uh, something that, that yeah, you're we, able to pull off. That and that, uh, I'm I'm just interested in how we, you we get this from from other married that. couples a lot. They're always like, "How do you work with your spouse without <laughs> there being a murder? Uh, <laughs> writing about a murder without there being one?" And uh, this, the, our secret is we have no overlapping skill set. Ah, yeah. Judy has the stories, and she's got a wonderful imagination. And I'm one of those writers who loves to just sit alone in a room and wrestle with words all yep. day. Yeah. And so we divide those roles, and we yep. never step on each other's toes, and right. we rely on one another. I have no fear of the blank page. I don't get writer's block. Mm-hmm. I have a section that I've written, and I know where I need to get, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I take Dr. Melanick out for a walk, and yeah. she tells me what to do. Usually we go it. for a walk. That's we find great. that when we walk, we can yeah. – Okay. But then, yeah, I'll, yeah. again, I'll say to her, so should I use this word or that word? Should the comma be here? She's like, what's the difference? I don't, I don't care. care. What, yeah. Yeah. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Call me next time. I'll tell you what <laughs> yeah, I know. She does. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I'll she have does, an opinion. She does correct me when I use terminology that's not scientific. Yeah. Ah, correct. see, she's your built-in fact checker. Yeah. She is. Right. Yes, she yes. is. Yes. And also, yeah. especially when it comes to cop dialogue. Uh, we had this yeah. problem with Working <laughs> Stiff. Right. Where, because Working <laughs> Stiff is, is nonfiction. It was her diary. There were days that she just wrote in her diary. Um, I spoke to uh, Inspector Jones and Ramirez about the such and such case. And that's all she'd write. Yep. I was like, well, I, oh, okay, I'll write that scene. So yeah. I wrote an entire scene and then she comes home and reads it and says, no, that didn't happen and you watch too much television. <laughs> Cops don't talk that way. Cops don't talk that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tear yeah. it all out. Yeah, and I said yeah. to myself, oh man, I wish I wasn't stuck with this nonfiction. Someday I'll be able to fiction <laughs> yeah. make it all up. And yeah, now I'm even, like, yeah. oh, like kind of wish I had all yeah. the material in front of me and I could just rework it. Yeah. But, but when it comes to dialogue, I definitely have an ear for listening to the way police officers speak and how it's different from attorneys or um, witnesses when they're being interrogated and also helps that um, part of my job, not only working for the coroner's office, but also doing medical legal consult work is to read transcripts. I read uh, police interrogation transcripts. I will read police reports. I will read um, uh, depositions (laughs) and go to court. And sometimes I even write questions for attorneys to ask another expert. So I, I have that dialogue in my head and it makes it much easier in writing those sections. So when we get to that, usually TJ will email it to me, <laughs> give me the prompt, and then I'll work on it and email it back. And Judy has read this entire book out loud because yeah. the way we work is, uh, as I said, we, she comes up with the story mostly and then we hash it out together. It gives me ideas and then right. we, we write the outline and then I sit down and I do the actual writing. And then 
when I get a couple of days worth, um, I ask Judy to read it back to me. Um, Usually because, in the kitchen while he's cooking dinner. Yeah, yeah, a lot <laughs> of the time. Um, because, you know, it, that fires different parts of your, of your brain when you hear it right. versus – and especially because this book is written in the first person and it's a woman. Um, hearing Judy read it really helps both of us, I think. Yeah. So right. she's read the whole book. Right. right. So right, I read right. it out loud to him while he makes dinner and then if I make any changes, it's the next morning. Right. I see. Um, the questions that have been brought up are those um, – do I wait till we're we're done with the conversation before I do these, or are though? Just do them now. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. We've got some wonderful questions, so I'm gonna start asking some sure. of these. Okay. Um, in Jamaica, it is not uncommon for family members to watch an autopsy be performed. Oh. How often do family or other involved members to a case ask to observe an autopsy? And is a request like this ever granted other than to a student? Wow, that's a really interesting question. I, to my knowledge in the United States, um, unless the person is a practitioner, you know, a physician, um, they probably would not be given access uh, to uh, watch an autopsy, especially if they're a loved one. I mean, part of it is, is there's uh, not just the emotional component, but there's just an inherent conflict of interest. And all of the cases that I investigate um, are uh, cases where there's some question about what happened. Um, there's a potential legal consequences. Right. So for from a, from a legal standpoint, it would not be a good idea to have that person there because then there would be allegations of bias or influence. Right, right, right. That, that's so interesting. Um, as a medical professional, <clears throat> how do fictionalized hospital and medical shows compare to reality? <laughs> Well, we actually wrote a blog. All of my writing, by the way, even though it's under my byline, a lot of it is written with TJ, too. I mean, we collaborate on everything. Um, so we wrote a blog post called Seven CSI Fails. You can just Google Seven CSI Fails and you can look it up. It's the seven things that drive. I don't know if we can remember all we seven We can't of watch them. these shows yeah. <laughs> yeah, because true. Dr. Melody starts shouting at the television. <laughs> so we just yeah. we don't, we don't watch but them. Can, you can help me. Number one is turn, turn on the lights. That's right. Yes. <laughs> because every time you watch these shows, I guess for the ambiance, they have to live really dark. And the reality is that the morgue is a surgical suite. It's brightly lit. And that's because we need to be able to see the evidence. Right. Um, and it drives me crazy when we watch this show. I'm like, somebody turn on the Makes light. Makes for terrible yeah. cinematography, though. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but Same even, thing with, with a crime yeah. scene. The first, thing, right. the first thing you do at a crime scene is turn on the lights yeah. and yes. look around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't use a flash. Don't use a flashlight unless you have to. Right. And, right. and the television shows also... Uh, they always have the, the state-of-the-art equipment. Right. They have, you know, yeah. these holographic images. And as I think the, that first cut... And, and working stuff as well actually portray the bare bones uh, yes. medical examiner. Yeah, that x-ray machine in the morgue in First Cut, which is which is very, very old and clunky, yeah. is based on the x-ray yeah. machine that Judy Agnes. That was in the San Francisco office before the they moved office. to yes. the new one. The and, yeah. They moved there just two years ago, so it's, it's yeah. still <laughs> fairly recent. That um, There's a question that kind of pertains to that, which is um, what does the near future hold for advances in forensic medicine? Mm. What will what we'll be able to do that it cannot do now? Well, one of the things that's really exciting um, with regards to um, forensic medicine, I have to say, is the advent of technology in our lives. And as a result, we are now examining things that, you know, I wasn't doing 15 years ago, you know, 17 years ago when I started. So when um, someone is dead and we suspect it's a suicide, back in the day, we'd obviously look for suicide notes. But nowadays, we're looking at social media posts, we're uh -huh. looking at tweets, we're looking at their cell phones. Um, I even had a police officer come to the morgue the other day to try to unlock the phone with the dead body because it was a facial ID. 
Um, and they couldn't unlock it to try to find wow. out what was the last messages or phone calls that the person had left. Your, your face changes yeah. quite a lot after you're dead. Yeah, oh, so, so the when they lied down, it didn't actually owner. work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, finger finger um, to unlock the phones that way. Because once you're dead, you don't have any expectation of privacy. You don't have Fourth Amendment rights. Yeah. Um, so that your phone can be searched and your property can be searched in order to help identify who killed you. This is very so useful if you are a detective novelist. Yeah. Because yes. you don't have to. Yeah. It's not a police procedural where you're like, well, the police, I have to go get a warrant. Jesse yeah. doesn't need a warrant, uh-huh. as, you, as you found right, in the right? Right, she, right. She just needs the permission of the property yeah. owner. Now, did the, th- the thumbprint of the dead guy, would, would that unlock? We couldn't them? get that to work either. I think it has to do with con- conductivity over the, so we couldn't oh, get that to work. So of, I've, oh, do, like I've done both and neither have worked, but I've had colleagues who've said that they've managed to get it. Either they dried the finger really well or they sat the person up. Dead people are so <laughs> yeah. annoying and uncooperative. I know, I know. Well, <laughs> we have to work with what we got. Uh, here's one I know you've had before. Um, can you talk about Jeffrey Epstein's death? Oh gosh, yes. I actually uh, we wrote I wrote a um, a piece for MedPage today about uh, Jeffrey Epstein's death. And the the thing that people are missing from this is that the medical examiner's office has probably been given a lot more information that they've than they've been willing to divulge at this particular point. Um, the thing that I'm most interested in in that case is the. Um, electronic records of the door locks because there were cameras there wasn't I, I understand like the camera on the actual hallway going to that um, room was not working but there are other cameras in the facilities and there are electronic locks that can tell you when the doors opened and when it's closed and that's the information that can tell you whether or not he was truly alone in the cell when he died and that will be the distinction between a homicide versus a suicide. More, if he's alone and nobody is in there with him, the only person who can hurt himself is himself. Um, when it comes to issues such as the um, angle of the ligature, whether they're petechiae, whether there's broken bones, all of that can happen in both homicides and in suicides. The yeah. distinction is whether it's a secure room or not. And if it's not a secure room, then a proper determination is actually undetermined, which says, I don't know. And that's another thing that's kind of missing from television forensics too, is that science is not absolute. I mean, yeah, you know this nobody as a science ever says, writer. I don't know. Right, yeah. and, and mm. science is not absolute. There's a lot of things that it could be one thing or it could be another, and there are possible, more than one possible explanations for what the phenomenon is that I'm seeing on the mo- in the morgue. Yeah, there's, there's yes. a dictum in forensic yeah. pathology that the body doesn't lie, the body never lies. But it also doesn't tell the whole truth all the time, yeah. and the the autopsy is only part of the investigation, as, as Judy's, yeah. Judy's right. uh, mentor, Dr. Right. Dr. Charles Hirsch, taught them it's only part of the investigation right. and you have to do all your work. And I think the Epstein case is, is, is a good of illustration examples. of that. Yep. There's yep. a whole lot of that investigation yep. that we in the public don't know yet. Sure. And yep. it will it will eventually come out. I think that there's an ongoing litigation. I mean, that's the other thing is the people are very impatient, you know, with our 24, it's not like 24 second news cycle. It's yes. no, no, no longer ours. Yep. We want to have um, results right away. We want to know right away. And the um, impetus is to think, well, if we're not being told right away, there's some sort of cover up. The truth is that in order for an investigation to unfold properly, you can't release information because then you're going to be biasing witnesses and people are going to come out of the woodwork and say, I saw it and I saw this, that and the other thing when they really didn't and they've been biased by the news reports. So it is very important to keep things confidential for a period of time while people are being interrogated, while investigation is ongoing, while uh, computer records are being um, downloaded and and 
corrected if there are errors in them, things like that, you know, if they're yep. stitched together over time. You know, a lot of these facilities are old. We, we talk about underfunding the medical examiner's office. A lot of our jails are underfunded too. Yep. So you don't necessarily have the most high-tech equipment. It doesn't, didn't surprise me, for instance, when I heard that the camera wasn't working. And then I again, things do look really yeah. dodgy in this case. Yes, they do. <laughs> I don't. I could. Yeah. I could see either side. It could see. It could go either way. But the real. The real answer is going to be in those electronic records. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, if you could go back in time to when you first entered the field, I assume this is for for me or him. For <laughs> the <writer>. S, huh? <laughs> yeah. uh, what advice would you give yourself? Oh well, actually, I can answer that first. Because people do ask me, yeah. what advice would you give to young writers? Yes, marry a nice Jewish doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and that's only half a joke now, because actually there was there was a really interesting article. I forget. If, I think it was in the New York Times about how uh, the idea of a of a writer being able to sustain yourself yes. is becoming less and less. That you have to have a day um, job. Yeah, either a day job yeah. or someone taking care of you. Yeah, I have someone taking care of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, thank you. You take care of me too, honey. I mean, that's that's I I really advice to give to myself. I'm really, I, I mean, the only advice I would give myself would be um, don't go into surgery because that's what I did originally. I actually went into general surgery, and it took me about six months before I realized that that was not the field for me. Yeah, but if you yeah. hadn't done that, you would have spent the rest of your life saying, "Oh, I should have been a surgeon. I, I could have right. been a surgeon. No, I, I shouldn't have given up on it." So, what was it about surgery that made you decide that you didn't want to do that? It was just the call schedule. Every other night on call, the complete and utter exhaustion of it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think that things have gotten a little bit better. I don't know if they've implemented, you know, more restrictions on the hours. She was that working 130 work. hour weeks. This was yeah. in a residency. Yeah, during residency, yeah. first year residency surgery, and I was just, you know, and I'm a good girl. I like if somebody told me go to the OR, I went to the OR. If somebody yeah. told me go round on the patients, I rounded on the patient, and I didn't think about my own health or my own sleep. <laughs> and after a while, I just collapsed from exhaustion, and that was not. Literally collapsed yeah. in the hospital where she's working, That's wakes true. up in the ER of the yeah. hospital where she's working wow. with, yeah. with a, a uh, with a line in her arm. That happened I, twice. IV. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, the line makes it sound like I'm using drugs. It was Sorry, an IV. an IV line. <laughs> Thank you. I needed fluids. But, I mean, I was also sick. I had the flu. And I continued yeah. to push myself. Yeah. So I'm sick and I'm yeah. taking care of patients who are sick. It's not good for me. It's not good for them. I mean, that's that's the other thing, if I can give advice to all the d- potential doctors out there or people working in healthcare, is the number one patient you should be taking care of is yourself. You can't take care of other people if you don't take care of your own mental health, of your own self, yeah. you know, the f- physical and mental health both. Yeah. I would like my surgeon to have had at least a few hours sleep. <laughs> so, yes. It's really important. Um, this is an interesting one. What was the biggest difference between working in New York City versus San Francisco slash Oakland? Mm. Ah, okay. Uh, biggest difference. Um, well, one is meth. We see a lot more methamphetamine out here than we do in oh. New York City. The other is motor vehicle collisions. Um, what was it that Dr. Hirsch yeah, said? Dr. Say? Hirsch said that the, <laughs> the average speed of traffic in Manhattan is the same as a running possum, about seven <laughs> miles an hour. Yeah. So, so I there did... aren't a lot of there, – there are people who get hit by buses yeah. or, tr- or trucks backing up. But uh, people dying in cars in New York City is Huns, very rare. Very unusual. Yeah. And here we have higher rates. Most places in the United States, that is yeah. the yeah. most common way that, yeah. you, will, yeah. that you will die. Yeah. So everybody, sense. just please slow down, okay? Yeah. And no, or don't stay don't out of your cars if you yeah, can. Yeah, get exercise. Use public transit. We're, we're the interesting thing about different cities is they have yeah. different types of death. Yeah. That sort of dominate. Yes, that's fascinating. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I mean, I have a you know a friend who 
I, I've never done a scuba death, for instance. In fact, I was consulted on a scuba death once, and I said, you know what? I am not the right expert for that. And I referred it to a colleague of mine. You did someone who was hit by a cable car. Yes, so I have oh, done cable car. Oh, the San Francisco yes, death. Is, I have had wow, cable car death. Wow, you need to put that in yeah. the books. Yeah. yeah, but the thing is, is that some of the stuff that I see is really stranger than fiction. And if we write it in, people would just think it's hokey. Like, they it's wouldn't true. even buy it. Yeah. I guess so, yeah. yeah. Um, so we're down to about a minute. So I'm going to ask, uh, uh, I guess, one more question. Um, and it's a writing question. How hard was it for you to find each character's voice and accent? That's a really good question. Um, it's very hard. And I, I don't know how exactly we did it. I, I do notice... You did it well, when, I must say. Oh, thank you. Yes. Good. Um, I do notice when that works in a book and when it doesn't work mm-hmm. in a book... And uh, we worked hard on it in, in our book. We, we have characters, because it's San Francisco, it is a multi-ethnic cast, and, yeah. and some of the characters, English is not their first language. And trying to um, do justice to how that sounds... Uh, Without making important. it a caricature. Exactly. Yeah. Was was a real yeah. challenge, and, and we worked at that. Uh, also to reproduce I'm, – I'm a transplanted East Coaster, so to reproduce the way Californians talk is, is also – was also kind of fun for me. And Jesse, our, um, our heroine, comes from uh, Lynn, Massachusetts, which is the next town over from yeah. where I come from in Nahant, Massachusetts. And so doing – she and Tommy sometimes break into Boston together, which is a lot of yeah. fun for me. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. 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 You sometimes read a novel where – Every character seems to have the same sense of humor, which is probably the author's sense yeah. of humor. And you're yeah. like, it's like the, that scene in the John being John Malkovich, where yeah. the entire restaurant is like all John Malkovich. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But you guys, I mean, the characters really are Thank you. distinctly formed and have full personalities and characters. And that's that's quite Yeah, but I think an, it's an a impressive. testament to the city of San Francisco. I mean, if we didn't have this environment, this multicultural, yeah. multi-ethnic, uh, fascinating environment to work with, I don't think we would yeah. have been It helps that we spend that. a lot of time on the bus listening to people. Yeah, we do. Yes. We eavesdrop. We're yeah, yeah, professional taking, eavesdroppers. Taking notes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, well, our thanks to Thank both you. of you, Dr. Judy Melanick and T.J. Mitchell. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Mary. Um, the program, this program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. We also want to remind everybody here the copies of our speakers' books are for sale, and they will be happy to sign books outside this room following the program. I'm Mary Roach, and now this Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. Thank you. That's awesome.